What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, tonight's the big night. There's going to be a fascinating show. I tuned into Fox News this morning for a little bit and watched Harris Faulkner's show. It was, it was hysterical. There's a caravan coming. Every time there's an election coming, there's a caravan coming. I don't know if, you know, I, I'm, I'm starting to think that right-wingers are like planting stories in Spanish on Facebook down in Central America going, hey, it's time to start a caravan. We're, we, you know, the door is open. But to start out, my op-ed today at HartmanReport.com is titled, When Was Bribery of Politicians Legalized in America? And, you know, I started asking this question, why don't we have gun control in the United States? We're literally the only developed country in the world that does not have gun control that doesn't have reasonable limitations on guns. We have reasonable limitations on owning cars, but not guns. Why? Well, it turns out it's because our Supreme Court, or more correctly, five Republicans on our Supreme Court, legalized bribery. Now, they didn't legalize the bribery of a store clerk or a bank teller or people who work for airlines. If somebody slips you on a flight in exchange for a hundred bucks in their back pocket or or uh, you, you pay a store clerk to look the other way while you shoplift something. You know, you can still go to jail for that. And it wasn't the bribery of judges or police officers or people who work in government offices. That, that's still very much a crime. Not even international bribery. If you're doing business, if you're a business person doing business outside the United States and you bribe somebody, you can still be prosecuted inside the United States for that. Now, the Supreme Court only legalized bribery for one very narrow group of people. Politicians. That's it. Now, we have laws against bribery because bribery destroys trust. Bribery disrupt, disrupts society. Bribery hurts us, not, not just as a society, but individually as well. We don't want bribery happening. We don't want, for example, drug companies paying off doctors to push pills. We saw that when the Sackler family was hustling Oxycontin. And, uh, you know, we saw the literally hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths. And it cost us billions of dollars. We don't want rich people being able to pay off judges so they can avoid prosecution. We want the Jeffrey Epsteins and the Bernie Madoffs and even in, back in the day, the old John Dillingers to be prosecuted. We don't want them to be able to bribe their way out by paying off a jury member. 
We now have almost complete paralysis in our political system. And we can track it all back to two Supreme Court decisions in 1976 and 1978, Buckley versus Vallejo and First National Bank versus Bellotti, in which the Supreme Court ruled for the first time in its history, in the history of the United States, frankly, for the first time in the history of any developed country in the world, that when a billionaire or a company bribes a politician, that is no longer corruption, that is no longer bribery, that is now called free speech. And those two decisions in 76 and 78 fueled the Reagan revolution in 1980, 1981. And we have had political gridlock now for 40 years. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. We can't get gun legislation passed. We can't get education legislation passed. We can't get social security stabilized and, and expanded. We can't get Medicare, uh, you know, unprivatized. I mean, the bribery is just left and right. And, you know, we got pharmaceuticals showing greater profits than ever before in the history of America. And Medicare literally is it forbidden by law from negotiating drug prices. Why? Because politicians were bribed by the drug companies. It's that simple. We have $2 trillion in student debt in the United States. When we know that the GI Bill, free college for everybody, or at least everybody who served in World War II, produced $7 in added tax revenue for every $1 that it cost us. Every other country in the world knows this. You have free college education or close to it, low cost, reasonable, affordable in every country, every developed country in the world. Why not here? Well, because our politicians are being bribed. I mean, before this era of bribery, the era of bribery began in 1980 in a big way. The decisions were 76 and 78, and then, of course, the Supreme Court doubled down, tripled down in 2010 with Citizens United. But before that, we did so much. We passed the right to unionize, which built the, you know, America's middle class. We passed unemployment insurance and workplace safety rules to protect workers. We passed Social Security to, to end poverty among the elderly, Medicare to provide health security for the elderly. That top tax rate of 74 to 91 percent before the era of bribery kept wages strong for working people and prevented an explosion of corrosive wealth inequality. We didn't get our first billionaire until after the Reagan revolution. We built colleges that were free and affordable. We built gleaming new nonprofit hospitals, the world's finest system of public schools, roads, bridges, rail, airports from coast to coast. We cleaned up the environment with the EPA. We cleaned up politics with the Federal Election Commission. We cleaned up corporate backroom deals with the SEC. We outlawed banks from gambling with our deposits with Glass-Steagall. And then it all came to a screeching halt with the Reagan revolution. Why? because bribery had been legalized by the Supreme Court. And thus, today, our nation's infrastructure is crumbling. 40 years of disinvestment and neglect. When the originalists, so-called, on the Supreme Court made this ruling, these, these Republicans on the Supreme Court back in 76 and 78, and Lewis Powell, by the way, of Powell Memo fame, wrote that decision in 78, the Buckley decision that gave corporations that power. They said that they were channeling the founders. We know what the founders said. Well, let's hear what one of the founders said. This is Thomas Jefferson. He was president, and he wrote the Declaration of Independence. 
1816, in a letter to Samuel Kirchival, he said, those seeking profit, now keep in mind, the Supreme Court, when they ruled that bribery of politicians was legal, said they were channeling the founders. Here's, one, here's probably the first among, well, among equals of the founders. Quote, those seeking profits where they given total freedom would not be the ones to trust to keep government pure and our rights secure. Indeed, it has always been those seeking wealth who were the source of corruption in government. I mean, the, 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 the Pennsylvania Constitution that was written in 1776 said, quote, an enormous proportion of property vested in a few individuals is dangerous to the rights and destructive to the common happiness of mankind. And therefore, every free state hath a right by its laws to discourage the possession of so much property. But we got it anyway. No other developed country in the world has this problem. We are literally the only one that allows politicians to be bribed. And thus, nothing is happening. And those bribed politicians are, are now, you know, they're, they're going on Fox News going, well, you know, 9-11, uh, we didn't ban airplanes because they're taking bribes from the, from the gun industry. They say, well, we don't, we don't think that we should mess with Medicare. Why? Because they don't want them to negotiate drug prices. They're taking money from the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, we can't end the student debt crisis. Why? Because they're taking money from the banks and the for-profit education industry. We've got to stop this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Anyhow, you can read the whole rant and all the links and details and all the, all the grim stuff over at HartmanReport.com. Bill in McHenry, Illinois. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Messaging, messaging, messaging about what the problems are. But the courses of action, we were kind of like herding cats. This morning, I, I turned on Fox and Friends. The world that they live in has to do with people marching in front of Brett Kavanaugh's house. And uh, there's a caravan coming. Yeah, I watched uh, it. I, I watched Harris Faulkner for about 20, 20, 30 minutes this morning while I was doing show prep. Just I was curious how they were going to prepare for tonight, you know. Well, exactly. So so we we have so many issues that are uh, illuminated and so many solutions that are creatively addressed in your program specifically, that our, our methodology, we're relying on our representatives. Uh, and the problem is that they're really, we elected them, they are our employees, and they're much too passive. I think in your business life you have found, and I have found, that when you gotta get something done, you set more fires than you have to put out so that they're going somewhere and you can get done what you need to get done. We need better strategy, more, and I'm hoping that there's some room somewhere in that building where there's strategy going on that, uh, that all of a sudden the uh, this is all going to open up and Merrick Garland is, is going to do what he needs to do. Yeah, what the timeline was that preceded January 6th. I think one of the most important things that I'm hoping that we find out is who was plotting this and how extensive the plans were. I mean, were these militias literally trying to murder the vice president of the United States? Was that planned in advance? Or was that an ad hoc reaction to Donald Trump tweeting around one o'clock in the afternoon that it looks like Mike Pence isn't gonna do his job? Who did shoot JR? I mean, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, there you go, Bill. We don't know the answers to all these questions. We've, we've, got, we've got a lot of information now, um, but the, the sad fact is that probably fewer than 10% of Americans really pay attention to this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, most Americans only pay attention to politics for six weeks before a presidential election. That's the window. You and I are from basically the same pledge class, and the, the situation is such that when we were coming up in our most impressionable years that we can change the world, the whole world's watching, Chicago, all of that, and now we fast, we don't fast forward, but you turn around and you look and 50 years has gone by, and here we stand, and what can we do? How do we influence our children? We can. Well, we can try. We can leave a message for them. Bill, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. I I do appreciate it. On the line with us is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, the co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books, most recently, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Prof. Wolf with two Fs over on Twitter. Professor Wolf, uh, welcome back to the program. What the hell is stagflation? I remember this word from the 80s. Uh, and what does this mean to the average person? And are we experiencing it? We are experiencing it. And the predictions of most people looking at the situation is that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Stagflation is a a messy word that is really born out of smashing together two other words. The first word is stagnant, and the second word is inflation. And that's the clue. What it means is having at the same time a stagnation in terms of no job increase, factories not humming along as they should, a kind of stagnant economy bumbling along on the one hand with rising prices of goods and services on the other. It used to be thought that you wouldn't have rising prices unless somehow too much money was chasing after too few goods. So we were told that that's what we should expect to understand inflation. Then it became clear that we've had inflations when there was a high demand. We've had inflations when there's low demand. Obviously, that link was broken. And we admit as much with this term of stagflation, because what we have today is an economy that is not growing and one that is suffering a very bad inflation at the same time. I thought our economy was growing. No, our economy is not growing. How do I put this and stay within the bounds of polite discourse? (laughs) The people in power need to present an economy that's in good shape, getting better, and all the rest of it. And so they do. When the Democrats are in, they do. When the Republicans are in, they do. When the Republicans are out, they are skeptical, and vice versa. Uh, What we have now is an economy in very serious problems. Uh, In fact, to be honest with you, I've never seen the American economy as hobbled by problems and as limited in the available solutions that I see now. Uh, It's a remarkable accumulation of difficulties. Uh, Nobody disputes that there's an inflation, kind of hard to do that these days with the overwhelming numbers. But when you look at the actual production decisions being made today, 
you can see that everywhere there is great uncertainty, hesitancy about making a commitment. Really, no business in its right mind at this point is going to take chances because it's too uncertain. The political situation abroad, the political conflicts here at home, the uncertainty about our elections, and then all the economic problems, it really is too much. And when that happens, we know that we're in for troubles with our economic situation. Indeed, the only number that the Biden folks can point to is the unemployment numbers. The number of people measured as not employed, basically, is historically small. But the truth of it is, Tom, that that's mostly because people have been leaving work our labor force participation remains below what it was before the pandemic. And likewise, you know, it's like going to a doctor and asking for a diagnosis. If all the doctor does is look at one variable, for example, your temperature, and bases the entire statement, oh, you're in great shape because you're 98.6, you'd never see that doctor again. You have lots of numbers to look at before you reach an assessment. The constant reference to the unemployment number is a cherry picking of very complicated statistics, which, if you look at all of them, is an economy that's in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it seems. And this is not limited to the United States. I mean, the, the World Bank just slashed global right. growth numbers. The inflation, at least according to the headline I saw in Financial Times day before yesterday, European inflation is 8.1%. Here in the United States, it's around 6.5%. This is hitting the whole world. What are the things I remember from the 70s and the 80s that the stagflation that, you know, remember Jerry Ford with his whip inflation now buttons, his wind buttons and all this kind of stuff. The thing that was driving it back then was high oil prices uh, that were the consequence of the, you know, the Arabs cutting off our oil, both in 1973 because we supported Israel in that war. And then in 1979, it wasn't the Arabs, it was the Iranians. Their oil got cut off because the Shah of Iran fell. That oil shortage drove an increase in oil prices and oil prices just echo through everything because everything, even products that have nothing to do with oil, have to be transported with oil, you know, or packaged with oil, or whatever. So what is driving this worldwide stagflation and what are the major risks on the horizon? And do you think, for example, if Joe Biden goes over to Saudi Arabia and kisses the butt of the of the crown prince, and then he raises, you know, oil production back up above that 2.2 million barrel a day cut that Jared Kushner had negotiated with him in 2020. And oil prices start to drop. Will that be enough to help the worldwide economy recover? I don't think so. Not even close. I think we're looking, as I said before, at an accumulation of problems. One of the reasons we have stagflation is because we have divided the country into a very small number of rich people and a very large number of people who are in deep trouble in terms of what they can afford to buy. You're not going to get a consumer-driven long-term uptick because we don't have the people to sustain that demand. Wages are not going up anywhere near enough. Debts are already too high. They can't borrow more. I saw a very alarming statistic that consumer debt in the months of March and April of this year, the latest that we have, jump up. People are trying to cope with the inflation by going deeper into debt. That's exactly what I mean. You're solving one problem by aggravating another one. No. Here's the second. No one knows whether the current spate of rising oil and gas prices is going to be over soon or not soon. 
All kinds of decisions have to be made that cannot be made rationally because we don't know where the basic cost of our gas and oil is going to go. Number three is this war in Ukraine, or more to be accurate, it isn't the war, it's the sanctions program that has led to every single producer engaged in foreign trade wondering, should I incur all the great expenses to go away from what we have been doing to accommodate these sanctions? Or will I spend a ton of money only to have the sanctions undone by some negotiations later this year or early next year when this whole war is over? And they're not going to move until that issue is clarified. And here's the one most Americans have a hard time understanding. The United States doesn't play the role in the world economy that it did in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. We are not the dominant economy with no challenger, which we were then. We have not only the People's Republic of China as a major competitor, and let me underscore, we haven't had a major global competitor for a century in this country. We are facing that and a whole world that is rethinking its alliances, its loyalties, because of the changed position. And that puts the United States in all kinds of constraints as to what it can do. And all corporate executives, American and non-American, are calculating and trying to stay ahead, and as a result, hesitant to move. And that's why the economy is dull and then you have the overhang of all the money created in the last 20 years. The stock market isn't booming anymore. So that money is going into the inflation that we see, bidding up the prices of whatever is scarce and hoping to keep your money growing that way because the rest of the economy is stagnating. Wow. Wow. Does, you know, inflation allows governments to pay off debts with cheaper dollars or cheaper, you know, euros or, or wands or whatever it may be. Presumably it does the same thing for consumers, although, you know, consumers have, are paying much higher interest rates to begin with. Is there any upside at all to inflation? Is inflation in any way curing any of these problems that you have delineated? I don't think so. I mean, you're quite right. Inflation is always good for a debtor and bad for the creditor. That's the way the, the game is played. So no question, the inflation eases the burden of pre-existing debts. But the problem is we have a population that is borrowing money like there's no tomorrow. And as a result, the better effect, if you like, of inflation that cheapens your existing debt is offset by the fact that people are taking on more debts. And remember, in the last 20 years, because interest rates were brought down to next to nothing, every corporation in America that had any kind of economic problem, whatever that problem was, knew that the quickest, fastest, and cheapest way to deal with your problem was to go out there and borrow all that fresh money at those terribly low interest rates. And they did that, which means their level of debt now is enormous. And while the burden of that is reduced by an inflation, 
as they have to pay off those debts, they're in no position not to roll the debt over. In other words, to borrow more to offset what they have to pay back. And when they borrow more, they're going to have to pay the higher interest rates and there negates whatever gain they might have gotten from the fact that inflation cheapens their old debts. It would only be good if there weren't new debts to, to load up on, but the very difficulty of the American economy means we have to keep loading up in a very dangerous spiral. Wow. Professor Richard Wolf, democracyworked.info, Prof Wolf on Twitter. Professor, thank you so much. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Jeff in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? I'm of the belief now that the oil industry and the big refiners have become just a part of the Republican Party. I believe that they have all come together and figured out now how we can destroy the Democratic Party and Democratic candidates is by holding the gas prices high. I believe we've heard that the some of the top uh, oil companies the first quarter had a 300% increase in their money raise. So I think that the Democratic Party is going to have a tough struggle against these big corporations that want to eliminate the Democratic Party. I agree with you. I agree. With, I, I completely agree with you. And I would let me let me expand the the lens on this conspiracy, Jeff. I think it's not just the big oil companies, and, and of course we know that the big oil companies have been, you know, partisan of the Republicans forever because the Republicans deny climate change, among other things. 
But also, I think that there's an international conspiracy on this. I think that the Saudis and, and some of the other major oil-producing kingdoms around the world, countries or autocracies, obviously Russia as well, have been conspiring to maintain high oil prices, not just to enhance their own profits, but also to hurt President Biden because they want to see Donald Trump back in office. Go ahead. I absolutely agree, Tom. And I I think this uh, $2 billion Jared Kushner from Ben Salman is very suspicious. And I wonder if there wasn't some uh, oil price manipulation there. Oh, Kushner was the guy who went over to Saudi Arabia back in... Jeez, I forget the month. I think it was May or June of 2020. You know, it was during the first few months of the oil crash or of the COVID crash. Of course, you know, that was when airplanes stopped flying and everybody stopped going to restaurants and everything basically shut down all around the world. And the price of oil had fallen so low that Texas oil producers and Oklahoma oil producers, you know, the oil industry here in the United States, small operations were going bankrupt because they were having to sell oil for below cost. Kushner went over there and negotiated a production cut with the Saudis. They cut production 2.2 million barrels a day, and it's still at that point with that cut in place. Yeah, one of the big talking points here that they're blaming Biden for, I think, is the pipeline. And I'm sure they're talking Keystone XL pipeline. And can you explain how that is not American oil? And the Democrats need to explain to people, because we have Republicans here using that talking point about how Biden shut down the Keystone, and that's why your fuel is so high. It's real simple. The, 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 The tar sands slurry that flows through the Keystone XL pipeline cannot be made into gasoline. It, it doesn't have enough high fraction elements in it. It's made into diesel fuel and lubricating oils and things like that. And most of it is exported. That's why the refineries are on the Gulf Coast. So that pipeline, the whole point of that pipeline was to get oil down to the Gulf Coast so that refineries that could handle that kind of heavy, heavy crude, that high sulfur crude, could refine it and then sell it overseas. None of that is and made. Not- none of that is made into gasoline for the United States. None. Yeah, and it's not even U.S. oil. It's Canadian oil. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, and it's not even oil. Actually, it's tar sand slurry. But yes, absolutely. The problem is that that's factual stuff, and you know the Republicans are just lying through their teeth as usual. Well, I got a crazy alert for you here. This is truly bizarre. So they're pushing legislation down in Tennessee to criminalize homelessness, as if that's the solution to homelessness, right? Just make it so that if somebody's camping on public property or even in a private property, but in an open space, we're going to throw them in jail. All this is going to do is cost us a lot more for jail. (laughs) It costs a lot of money to throw people in jail. There's a lot of homeless people. There's a whole range. I mean, you know, we can have debates and discussions about what to do about homelessness, but just throwing them in jail, not the best strategy. But anyhow, they're debating this bill in Tennessee that would punish unauthorized camping. State Senator Brenda Gilmore, a Democrat from Nashville, spoke up and she says, it just breaks my heart that we're criminalizing people who have nowhere else to go. And if you take and incarcerate their parents, and she's talking about homeless kids, then I think that, again, only multiplies the issue of taking their parents away from these children simply because they're poor. So in response to that, this other lawmaker who steps up, his name is Frank Nicely. He's from Strawberry Plains, Republican from Strawberry Plains, Tennessee. And he says, I want to give you a little history lesson on homelessness. 
In 1910, Adolf Hitler decided to live on the streets for a while. Hitler lived on the streets and practiced his oratory and body language and how to connect with the masses, and then he went on to lead a life that got him in the history books. So a lot of these people, it's not a dead end. They can come out of this. These homeless camps, they can come out of them and have a productive life. Just like Hitler. Yes, this is our role model. I'm guessing that this guy just like, just learned this, and he was, you know, uh, somehow, for some reason, marinating in the history of Adolf Hitler's life. And so it just like popped out of his mind. But maybe he's a, I don't know, maybe this guy is like a longtime Hitler aficionado. Maybe everything everybody says, you know, well, I think that's a pretty good dog food. Oh, you know, Hitler loved his dog. Uh, <laughs> Hitler did love his dog. Letitia James, the attorney general for New York State, asked a state judge to fine Donald Trump 10,000 bucks a day until he complies with the subpoena. As of March 3rd, which is what, a month and a week or so ago, a month and 11 days ago, he was supposed to turn over a bunch of documents to the New York State Attorney General's office and show up for, you know, some discussions, shall we say. So she says, you know, he's in contempt of court. She's asking the court to find him in contempt of court. Now, for Donald Trump, $10,000 a day, I mean, you know, for you, for me, $10,000 a day is a lot, right? For most Americans, I mean, more than half of Americans can't deal with a $400 unexpected expense. More than 60% of Americans can't deal with a $1,000 unexpected expense. $10,000 a day, it's a hell of a lot of money for the average American, and it would wipe out a low-income family. I mean, could throw them into bankruptcy, into homelessness, it would just wipe them out. But for Donald Trump? I mean, this is a guy who has billions and has access to billions more. His son-in-law just got $2 billion for what Trump did while he was in the White House, you know, sucking up to Saudi Arabia. His Treasury Secretary got a billion dollars. I mean, you know, $10,000 a day, if you multiply that by 365 days a year, you get $3.65 million a year. Well, Donald Trump has every reason to want to drag this investigation out as long as he can. I mean, you know, they're looking into whether he committed bank fraud and tax fraud. You go to prison for both those things. Now, this is a civil inquiry so far that uh, Letitia James is doing. In other words, it could cost him a lot of money. But even that, hey, for three and a half million dollars, he can keep the wolf away from the door. Sure, go for it. Andrea Junker noted over on Twitter, I've said it once and I'll say it a thousand times. If the penalty for breaking a law is a fine, then the law only exists for the poor. And it's true. So, you know, what do we do? I mean, you know, we, we run this kind of flat rate fee system fine system in America where, you know, if you get a traffic ticket, it's $50 or $200 or whatever it is. You know, you get that traffic ticket. If you can't afford to pay that, then tough luck. You go to jail or tough luck. The fine starts getting compounded and pretty soon you're broken bankrupt. On the other hand, if you're morbidly rich, a $200 traffic ticket, you just have, you know, one of your employees handle it. So what do other countries around the world do about this? This fact that, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's an old cliche that America has two justice systems, one for the rich and one for everybody else. But it's true. 
So what other countries have tried to do something about this? Sweden, Germany, Denmark, Austria, Switzerland, and France all have systems where when you pay a fine, it's based on how much you're worth or how much you earn. These are typically called day fines in Europe. And they're called day fines because they're based on how much money you have left over at the end of a day. So they take your daily income, subtract from it your basic living expenses, your rent and transportation and food, and what's left over is how much money you typically have left over every day. So, so they may say, okay, this guy has 50 bucks left over every day, or this guy has $10 left over every day, or this person over here has $100,000 left over every day. I mean, you've got some billionaires out there. You had Jeff Bezos and, and Elon Musk, you know, making literally millions of dollars an hour, probably millions of dollars a minute. You would look at them and you'd say, okay, one day's income, you know, what do you have left over? Oh, he's got three and a half million dollars left over. So the fine becomes half of that. What they do is they say, okay, we're going to take half of that day's leftover money. So if you have 100 bucks left over at the end of the day, the fine is $50. If you have a million dollars left over at the end of the day, the fine is $500,000. And occasionally we hear a story about this, you know, like uh, this guy, uh, Rima Kisla, $60,000 fine in Finland for going 64 in a 50 mile zone. $60,000 fine. Well, that was half of what he had left over for one day. And then they add multiples, by the way, in all these countries. They say, you know, they can, in Denmark, for example, it can go up to 240 times or 120 days, basically three months worth of day fines, depending on how severe the crime is. Now, this is not a new idea. In 1748, Montesquieu in his spirit of the laws, wrote, but do not rich people fear the loss of their goods? Cannot pecuniary penalties, you know, financial penalties, be proportionate to fortunes? And then probably thinking of some criminal, high-profile serial criminal like Donald Trump back in 1748, he said, and finally, cannot infamy be joined with these penalties? Right. I mean, you know, across America now, we've got a lot of cities that are looking at their cash bail policies and saying, you know, this is crazy. Rich people, post bail and walk. Poor people can't afford bail. They're in jail for months and months until they go to trial. And during that time, they can't enter in, in income. They lose their home. They lose their family. They, I mean, you know, just terrible things happen. And they may be found not guilty. Or the charges might be dropped. So, you know, if somebody's dangerous to the public, the thinking goes, or a flight risk, then, you know, you keep them in jail with no bail. And if they're not dangerous to the public or a flight risk, you let them go at least until their trial. So I'm suggesting that this would be a good idea for us to do in America. We have tens of thousands of people in this country who lose their freedom every day because they can't cover what would be irrelevant fees or fines or court costs for a wealthy person. And that's morally wrong. It's legally stupid. And it shouldn't be happening in America. I mean, I thought we were supposed to have outlined debtors prisons. This literally, you know, I said this goes way back. This literally goes back to the Magna Carta, 1215. That field in Runnymede where King John, you know, put his seal on the Magna Carta. The 14th article says, a free man is not to be immersed. In other words, fined. 
for a small offense, save in accordance with the manner of the offense, and for a major offense, according to its magnitude, saving his sufficiency. Salvo contempt no suo. In other words, saving his sufficiency, leaving him enough to provide for his family. So I think that we should seriously think about this because, you know, the system that we have right now lets people like Donald Trump just say, oh, yeah, for three and a half million bucks a year, I can just not go to jail. And he's got billions. But the average person, you know, no, they get wiped out by this. I think it's time to bring some common sense and fairness to our justice system and adopting day fines that are as meaningful to Donald Trump as to the janitor in his building when they break the law is a great place to start. Let's say you. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Justin in Lincoln, Nebraska. Hey, Justin, what's on your mind today? Countries in Europe, Scandinavian, I believe, and Norway in particular, serious traffic violations and driving under the influence. Fines are based on your income and or your wealth and or your ability to pay or some combination of three. I don't remember. Right. Yeah. They call them day fines and they're based on how much money you have left over at the end of one day. And and then they take half of that. So, you know, if you if you if you're Elon Musk and you've got, you know, 10 million dollars left over at the end of a day, it's a five million dollar fine. If you're, you know, a guy who's making minimum wage and you got 50 cents left over at the end of the day, it's a 25 cent fine. Yeah, and the, the case that I, I sort of remember in particular was a Norwegian guy, rich, wealthy guy who had something like a Ferrari Testarossa that he was operating uh, something well over 100 kilometers in excess of the speed limit. Fine, if I remember right, was six or $700,000. Yeah, it was huge. I, there have been a number of those. There was one in Finland. There was one in Denmark. There, I don't know about Norway. But there have been a, a couple of them that have that have uh, swept the media, and yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, but by everything else in this country, that kind of exquisite justice will never be obtained until Citizens United and all those other bad decisions are gone, because yes. the rich write the laws. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, and we need to do something about it. I'm with you. Lance, listening on WCPT in Columbus, Ohio. I'm trying to figure out why 
prices at the pump for gasoline and even oil is so high. And I'm understanding, you know, the homilies, you know, that supply and demand and all that. And you, you, we all know that there's no shortage. But um, I, it's your oil's futures, it's the trading of oil futures, right? Mm-hmm. And it turns out only 3% of the oil's futures contracts actually involve delivering oil. And when they expire, they just expire. Right. Most of so them are speculation. Really, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is that, I, you know, I kind of understand how wheat is and other things. I mean, that is a commodity. But if you wanted to buy some wheat, you can buy it. It's, it's clear cut. But here it seems like there's a bit of not necessarily a subterfuge, but it, it's being used. I mean, we don't know what these oil companies are really buying and paying for uh, oil. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we rely on, you know, I'd love to have somebody some like the economist you had on explain, because, I mean, this affects all of us. And we're all yelling and screaming about it, but we don't know you know, really much about the real process of uh, an oil company buying oil from a producer. And there's all sorts of terminology that they use, uh, forwards, and uh, I just wrote another one down, uh, but it doesn't matter. The thing I'm getting at is, is it, I think we're all, I just think that... Um, you it, think the industry has us buffaloed? Yeah. That I mean, might have I, something it, to do with why they're showing record profits. Well, it certainly might. I mean, that's the whole point is if people are mad at Biden, they're mad at whatever. They're mad at the wrong people, perhaps, or at least understand, you know, really what is going on. How does, you know, how does the oil get to the gas pump? You know, they talk about refineries. The refineries are fewer of them, but they have much higher capacity. There is no problem. They're they're blaming on just nonsense. And usually it's political, like, you know, Biden doesn't like oil, right? I'm of the opinion that, that the oil industry corporate oil industry, the Saudi government, the Russian government are all working together. I realize this sounds paranoid, but I think they're all working together to try to bring down Biden and bring Trump back into power, frankly. I um, think, yeah, and line, line their pockets. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that would be the, the, the side effect. Thank you, Richard. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Tony in Northampton, Massachusetts. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to WHMP. Good afternoon. Uh, gas prices and oil subsidies. Okay. Every time you turn the TV on, the first three stories, one of them is going to be about the high prices of gas. Right. I called my state representative, uh, Richard O'Neill, and my state senator, Ed Markey, and left messages. I'd like to know how much money the taxpayers have paid in subsidies to these companies in the past year, the past year and a half. With the profits they've posted this year, they're misguiding this, their anger at Biden when these people are gouging us. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that our current subsidies to the fossil fuel industry right now, and this is right across the board. This isn't just oil. This includes natural gas and coal, and it also includes the military cost of protecting shipping lanes to import oil from, like Saudi Arabia. I think that total cost is estimated to be around $600 billion a year. So, uh, you know, you could divide the, the American population, or maybe two-thirds of the American population, the adult American population, uh, into, uh, which would probably be, what, maybe 270 million, 260 million people, divide that into $600 billion, and you'd get the per-person subsidy. I can't do math like that in my head fast enough to know. Um, but. Uh, that, my point is, wh- why are we subsidizing them? And what? Because they know, own the Republican Party. Yeah, that's 
I mean, it's very simple. It's very, very simple. We are continuing to destroy this country. Yeah, no, they they absolutely are, and 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 uh, and and this is you know when when the, the when the Democrats proposed in the in in Congress in the House of Representatives a bill to reduce the price of oil um, in the United States through several different means, um, you know that were all I think you know quite legitimate. Not a single Republican voted for them because the Republican. I mean, this is why the Republicans continue to deny climate change at the same time that their own districts are getting wiped out by directos and and uh, you know forest fires and floods and and you know all sorts of natural disasters. Is that you know it's it's money. It's the fossil fuel industry's money and the fossil fuels industry's power. And the reason all that exists, the reason they have that kind of power is because five Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court over the last 30 years have repeated, or after, actually over the last 50 years, have repeatedly said that if billionaires and oil companies want to own politicians, it's legal. They legalize bribery. Big Tony, I got to run, but thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And Tony, I share your outrage. We need to be talking about legalized bribery in the United States because it's a crisis and it's, it's an epidemic. Dennis in Aptos, California, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Dennis, what's up? What's up? Well, I wanted to give you some good news, and that is that Measure D, otherwise known as Greenway, lost in Santa Cruz County. We are going to save the rail line for passenger rail use. Hopefully, the sooner the better. But the main thing is Measure D was backed by a, a, a vulture capitalist from Silicon Valley. A lot of the richest people in Santa Cruz County gave them money. They outspent our side, no on D, no way, Greenway, two to one. And they really? had TV ads. And so the big money guys lost. And, um, you know, you're talking about bribery. Jenny Panetta, the congressman, uh, he was like um, radio silent on the issue. Uh, Sam Farr, the former representative for the Monterey Bay area, he said D, uh, Measure D was a bad idea. So did uh, former Governor Brown. He came out on our side. So the money interests, they lost. They lost this round, so and I'm really happy about that. How did how did your side message? How did you how did you get the word out? Door to door, basically. In fact, my driveway was used as a headquarters one Saturday for people who went out, did walks. They went to all the all the neighborhoods, basically in Santa Cruz County, were uh, were walked door to door by volunteers wow. who. Uh, who, who gave literature out saying this is why Measure D is bad. Uh, you know, the whole idea of rail banking, which means you tear out the rail line, and maybe 30, 40 years ago, uh, uh, years from now, you put the rail back in, which, which would cost a, a heck of a lot of money compared to just leaving them and fixing them. Right. And nowhere in the United States has rail banking even been done. What and, is rail banking? Uh, you know, this, yeah, uh, it, it doesn't work. I, I, I've never even heard of it. Well, it, it comes from a law that was passed in the early 80s called the Rails to Trails Act. It was a federal law, and it was really designed for old, disused, mostly freight lines 
on the East Coast and in the Midwest that went to things like um, steel mills and coal mines that had shut down. Right. And so the, the idea would be tear out, the, uh, tear out the rail and put in a trail for people to walk and right. so on. But that's not the case with ours. Uh, we've got horrible traffic in Santa Cruz County and Monterey County as well. And we don't have any passenger rail service in the Monterey Bay region except for two Coast Starlights that yeah. go through. Well, uh, and Dennis, stop it. We're out of time, but congratulations. <laughs> thanks for the thanks for the report. Thanks for the update. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Carl in Chicago. Hey, Carl, what's on your mind today? I have a question, and it's very important about getting information directly to the people. You know, periodically, like Roosevelt used to have fireside chats to address the nation. The one person in the United States that can actually talk to everybody is the president. If periodically, let's say Biden, would say the president is going to address the nation. And let's take two things, for example. Let's take the, the high gas prices, and let's take the, the, the problems with the guns, with, uh, with the NRA. You know, he did that he last week. He sat down and said, here's the reason why. The same information that you give us, the reason why gas prices are too high is because the Saudis have pulled back on the amount of oil that they're sending into the United States, and because they cut a deal with the previous administra- administration, and because of that, we have a shortage of oil in the United States. That's the reason why. Not the Keystone Pipeline. He hasn't stopped fracking. Those are the lies get floated around. And let's say the NRA. Uh, talk about the NRA. What you say is the politicians are getting uh, money from the NRA. You specifically say who's getting the money and exactly how much money they're getting. Why the president in one of these fireside chats did, wouldn't say the same thing that you're saying, that they're getting X amount of dollars. These are the politicians that are getting the money. This is the reason why we can't get anything accomplished with the guns because of the, the, the NRA buying our politicians. Why they don't do those old-fashioned fireside chats when it was more or less mandatory for the networks to carry them well, periodically, or once every two months. To get Carl, them. I get it. Pause for just a second. Let me respond to all this because there's a break coming you know, in, in a minute or so. Um, Number one, when Roosevelt was doing fireside chats, there were only two radio networks, the red network and the blue network. And, uh, and that was the only, the only way that people, we didn't have television. I mean, you know, there was two radio networks. So it was a whole lot easier to reach out to all of America. Number two, Joe Biden did exactly what you're talking about last week. The one thing that he didn't quite do, I mean, he did talk about gas prices and he did talk about guns and he did talk about the power of the NRA. What he didn't do that Donald Trump used to do on a daily basis is he didn't get partisan. He didn't attack the Republicans. And that's because he thinks that he represents all of America. He's the president to all of America. He's the president for Republicans as well. And he's trying to, and he's trying to hold to that very noble idea. 
Whereas Trump would just come right out and say, I'm only the president for the Republicans and the, and the Democrat Party and all this kind of nonsense. You know, Trump used to trash Democrats all the time. But Biden is trying to be the president for all of us. Whether that's going to be a strategy that's going to work out for him and the Democratic Party, I don't have an easy answer, uh, Carl. But uh, I, 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 you know, I, I, you're not going to turn him into a partisan hack. He's not going to do that. Well, unfortunately, the major networks didn't carry his speech, and I missed his speech because I thought it was going to be on a major network, and it wasn't. Yeah. Wow, yeah. I, you know, I caught it on MSNBC, I think, but uh, so. Uh, yeah, unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, yeah, you're welcome, Carl. I, you know, I totally get it, and I totally get your frustration, and I, it, and and at some levels, I share it. I, I do think that Biden trying to be president. You know, there's a certain nobility to that, to, 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 to be the president for all Americans and to not be partisan and to, and to just, you know, be the guy who's there for everybody. Um, but it's a very difficult thing to do in an environment where you're constantly being attacked by a political party that is perfectly willing to lie through their teeth in order to defend the people who are pouring money into their back pockets. So here we are. Cynthia in Wilmington, Delaware. Hey, Cynthia, what's on your mind today? Hi, I have a comment and a question regarding assault weapons. I'm a retired educator, and in my career, I taught everything from our littlest littles to our college students. Mm -hmm. And I am just so perplexed that the Democrats and even some of the gun safety organizations I belong to and donate to are not being adamant about we need to reinstate the assault weapons ban. Right. We have the data that shows that the incidences of these heinous, horrific events were so low during those times, and I don't understand. This is the opportunity. Uh, I'm old enough to remember Sandy Hook and Columbine and the very first shootings. It's as though they're willing to settle for a minimum that really isn't going to do a whole hell of a lot. George Bush, who was president when he and the GOP allowed the law to sunset, as far as I can tell, has been radio silent on all this, and he's a resident of Texas. Yeah, yeah, he has been. The, the reason, and I, I don't know what to say about that, uh, you know, other than that, you know, a lot of this is on his hands, but the reason why the gun uh, safety people are trying, or gun control people, as, as the, you know, I prefer gun control, frankly, and I know people are saying, don't use that word, it freaks them out. Yeah, they should be freaked out. Um, but the reason why they're willing to take a little bit is because they know that they're not going to get the, the, the assault weapons ban. They're not going to get anything meaningful. But if they can peel away a couple of Republicans and get them to take a, a small step, if we can begin down the process, it's the old camel's nose under the tent. The NRA is saying the same thing I'm saying. They're hysterical about the camel's nose under the tent. I wanted to flag for you something that is going to be coming down the road that we are going to be hearing about in a big way. It's one of those kind of stories that will be spun. 
I'm warning you in advance. Uh, just, <laughs> just like I, you know, I, could, I could have said back in 2020, oh yeah, Jared Kushner negotiates a Saudi oil production cut. We're going to have expensive gasoline once this pandemic is over. Surprise, surprise, here we are. And it will be spun, and, and sure enough, it was. This is another story that will be spun. Wheat is on the verge of rotting in Ukraine's warehouses. This is a, potentially a major crisis. Wheat exports from Russia and Ukraine account for 30% of the world's supply. Ukraine is 9%. It's generally referred to as 10%, but it's more or less 9%. And that wheat right now, and other grains as well, and oils, I, I mentioned this a couple of days ago too, is rotting or on the verge of it. The opening of the story in, in The Guardian today, the headline, The Black Sea Blockade Mapping the Impact in Ukraine on the World's Food Supply. It's an interactive piece. It's really worth reading at theguardian.com. First sentence, wheat is on the verge of rotting in Ukraine's warehouses because Russia is blockading ships from going into or coming out of Ukraine. And that includes food. They are literally holding the world hostage, or at least large parts of the Middle East and Africa, hostage. And we're going to start seeing expansions of famine. We're going to start seeing massive political instability as food prices go up. Keep in mind, the thing that tripped off the Arab Spring was a Tunisian falafel vendor who lit himself on fire because the price of wheat, his falafels had gotten so expensive he couldn't sell them. You know, that was because of global warming situation in Syria. But in particular, global warming, it had wiped out a lot of the farms in, in the northern part of Africa, and because and, this was in Tunisia. You know, this was the result, an increase in the price of wheat. Well, this is going to be even worse. It's June. The crops are not even being harvested in a big way yet, the major part of the crops. And when they are, and, they, and if they can't move, this is going to be a crisis. It's going to be a worldwide crisis. It's going to show up in prices in America. It's going to show up in prices around the world. But beyond that, it's going to cause political instability. And it's going, and it, and it's going to exacerbate those places where we already have famine, where there's already a crisis. So what do we do about this? This has got to be something that is being discussed right now in Washington, D.C., in the Pentagon. Do we try to break the blockade? Do we have our Navy challenge the Russian Navy? I'm pretty sure Ukraine doesn't even have a Navy. I might be wrong on that, but if they do, it's of little consequence. But we have one. And many of the other countries, you know, in the region have them. Do we want to take on a Russian blockade? Is that the thing that leads to World War III? Or is that the time, is that the moment where we've got, you know, the excuse of, oh, you know, this isn't just us defending Ukraine or us, you know, taking on Putin. This is to save the lives of millions of people in the Middle East and Africa. We're going to do this. And let the chips fall where they may. I don't know how this is going to play out, and, and I don't think anybody does. What I do know is this is one of the wildest of the wild cards around that is coming out of this brutal Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
it has the potential to be extraordinarily damaging to the world. It's just a whole spectrum of ways. So I just wanted to flag that for you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.